Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. Many of us hold complex identities, meaning we don't fit nicely into one box or another. One element of our lives may align well with traditional masculine norms, while other areas may not at all. And that's what we're all about here on The New Masculine, making space for complexity and nuance. So much of that is lacking in this world right now. My next guest, Ben Gilliam, is a perfect example of someone like this. Ben has found business success as a managing principal and national market leader for a large corporate real estate company, is an eight-time gold medal winning power lifter, recently became the chair of the board of directors for the GLBT Historical Society Museum and Archives in San Francisco. Oh, and on the side, he also assists LGBTQ entrepreneurs and LGBTQ youth with life and business coaching at reduced rates to ensure the services are accessible. So yeah, he's doing a lot. Ben and I met through one of those kismet experiences where a mutual connection of ours decided we needed to meet each other. And after meeting him, I'm super grateful she put us together. On a personal level, Ben identifies as a hunter, as an entrepreneur, and as a gay man. So let's learn more about this man's story, the lessons he's learned from his life, and what he's offering in the world. Thanks for joining me, Ben. Hey, it's great to see you today. Thank you so much. Um, it's a privilege to be here. Oh, Thank you. Wow. I would say the honor's mine, and the, and the audience, I think, will feel the same as well. Um, is there anything else about yourself that you think is important for people to know before we jump into the meat of this conversation? Oh, I, I, I think it's to, um, you know, I... I think about the Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. <laughs> you know, when I when I was a 12, 13-year-old kid and my father passed away, I I thought my world was over. You know, I grew up in a very small ranching town in southern Colorado and um, really wasn't sure where my life was going to go. You know, I, I never dreamed I would be doing what I'm doing today for work. Work. I, I never was even aware that existed. Um much less ultimately moving to San Francisco and doing some of the things that I do here. So it's been quite a journey. For me. Isn't it wild how life we, even when we try to script our life and actually like know what the trajectory of it is, life gives us a curveball and it says pivot and it you need sure to does. switch and change. And then life actually works out in ways that you could never imagine. I think that's true. And I, I think to the point of masculinity, I, I, I think when I was younger, used to feel like I had to control, like I had to have control over things. And I finally realized 
I don't have control over anything. You, know? I mean, <laughs> you just kind of, you know, life happens and you just kind of go with the flow of it and, and you make the best of it. You know, it's not, you're not control of anything at all. That is yeah. such a like terrifying realization for most of us when we rec- when we come up against the lack of control we actually have in this world. And yet yeah. there's something super freeing about it. Once we actually yes. let ourselves sit in that for a little while, because then yep. All of the effort we've been doing towards trying to control, uh, we can let all that down and actually start to learn how to live life uh, in sort of like co-creation with what is. Oh, it's so true. You know, um, you you know, because we both kind of came from the same Zen place in mm. San Luis Obispo and Pismo Beach. When I was a kid, I surfed a lot. And I equate surfing to life in the sense that you get this board, you got on this huge body of water that is much more powerful than you. And you try to get up on the board, you try to master just staying on top of it for a little while. Um, so you're not you're not fighting with the ocean, you're trying to soar with it. But then you tumble, you get back up again on the board, and you do it again and again and again. And that, to me, is a metaphor for life. You know, there really isn't such thing as a happy ending so much as that You've got to get realistic and realize there's going to be other challenges. They happen all the time. But each time that you get up on the board and master, you get better and better at doing it. And I think that that's true about life as well. Mm-hmm. That is such a good metaphor because there is falling down and crashing and there right. is um, some level of influence in your ability to like stay up on that board and balance. There's parts that you're yes. participating in, but you're not creating the waves you're mm-hmm. not in control of what happens with the water or where the rocks are or where uh, other surfers are. Like you're not in control of That's a right. whole lot of it, but you do have your yeah. place in it, which is that balance piece. That's that timing piece there and that staying present in the moment so that you can adapt and adjust as you go. Yeah. That, that reminds me of, of another metaphor. You know, when I was in college, I taught skiing. And the first thing I would do is when I had a little group was to teach them how to fall, which surprised them. They're like, you know, I want to get up here and like master this hill. But the reason I taught them to fall in the beginning was to get them over the fear of falling mm. because you are going to fall. Everybody's going to fall, you know, when, when you ski. That's just part of it unless you're taking absolutely no risks at all. But when you get over the fear of the falling, that's when you start to master skiing and moving up in terms of, you know, the types of slopes that you can master because you've gotten over the fear Mm. Uh, and, and fear holds people back from so many different things. So Mm -hmm. I always love to tackle the, uh, the falling thing first with my students because it got them very quickly over that like freeze up fear of, Oh my God, I'm going to fall, fall as much as you want. It's fine. You've got, a team around here to support you. It's totally okay. We all do it. It's good. Yeah. It reminds me of that lesson that I'm still trying to learn regularly. That is learn to fail quickly. Like if I'm putting something out in my business, if I'm trying something new, like learn to fail quickly because then you get to learn, then you get over that fear and then you actually can start to engage. But before you're willing to do that, you kind of just hold back and don't actually put anything out there. So it's something I'm still working on as, as a guy in this world is, is actually learning to fall or learning to fail and being okay with that because it's a part of the process. Yeah, I, I think to the, the point of our topic about masculinity and, and toxic masculinity that 
being brought up um, as young men, at least in my experience, um, you did everything you could not to fail. Like to mm. fail was seen as not a positive thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So in elementary school, when you're in pop Warner football and you're learning to catch a ball and you don't catch it, and then your teammates tease you and call you butterfingers, you know, anybody, very few people can catch a football first time thrown out, but mm. um, what, what, <laughs> What they didn't realize and what I finally realized is that with enough practice, um, you can master catching a football just as you can anything else. But first times out are not practical to do that. You know, I I, I think about that that Christmas show, Rudolph the Red, Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, when all the reindeer are trying to like, you know, fly up into the air, but they can't. And they're kind of teasing Rudolph because he's got that red nose. But he turns out to be the you know, the, the lead, like the master of the whole pack, you know, even though he had to suffer um, a lot of teasing and some rejection in the process, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think that, um, I think that evolving from having toxic masculine traits to evolving to what, what you define as a new masculinity, which I think is a wonderful name for it, means that you start to realize that, um, force and violence and being macho are tools that don't serve you as well as tools of compassion and love and looking at humanity as, as a family. And, you know, lots of times when I'm in a situation where uh, there's a conflict, because in my world, in the commercial real estate world, there's always knocking heads. I mean, you're talking Mm. about lots and lots of money and um, a lot of risk. I, I, I step back and look at somebody as they would be if they were five or six years old, you know, and try to look for the child in them. And so many times when you do that, what you see projecting is fear. You know, um, we, we, we all go back to those things where it's like, all right, if nothing else works, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to threaten and bully. Um, and I, and I think in my case, you know, I, I'll never forget when I was in second grade, there was a kid in my class that just didn't like me. And one day I was walking home with my buddies and he was up in a bush. Like I was walking up a hill. He was up in a bush and came at me and hit me in the head with a rock really hard. Mm. Well, it just, it really pissed me off. And so I pummeled him, you know, and my friends got me home. And um, after that, that kid never messed with me again. And so, and and I mean, so so through my school years, I never had anybody messing with me. And so for a while I thought that was the way to solve dealing with, with bullies. I have since learned that there are many other tools you can use Mm. besides force. Um, You know, sometimes just slowing things down and creating a compassionate, safe space for somebody, Um, you know, and I'm talking adult to adult, um, is a way to to create a dialogue that's going to be a lot more fruitful and healthy to the situation than just fighting words. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean anger is an important uh emotion that we all have. It's it helps yeah. protect us, it helps keep us safe and yet so yeah. many of us especially as men have gotten used to relying only on that using that as the only tool and that's a pretty blunt tool (laughs) and it it may be effective in some situations but there's other strategies and other ways to navigate conflict or to navigate 
uh, that sort of power over energy that that bully was demonstrating towards you yeah. that you had to kind of meet in that moment. And yet you're, you're finding nuance to find out other tools and resources that actually can support relationships rather than just cause disconnection. Yeah. I, I think where my maturity was interrupted this is ironic to say this is when I was 14, my father passed away. I'm the oldest of eight kids and I had a great father, but he, you know, he was having breakfast with, with us at seven thirty, and at nine o'clock in the morning, he was gone. Wow. So, you know, we had to, our life changed really quickly and I'll never forget all the people around my mother, the adults coming up to me and saying, you're the man of the family. Now you're the man of the family. You know, now it's your responsibility. You're the man of the family. You know, and as a 14 year old kid, I'm like, well, what is a man of a family? What is a man of the family? You know, like, is that, is that a John Wayne, you know, is that, you know, like, like, who is that? And I, and I kind of sat back and thought about the male role models I had around me, which I had good ones. I have five uncles and two grandfathers who are really good and my father, but they were all that more traditional masculine John Wayne type of person. And so that was really the only reference point I had to go forward as a teenager while I was dealing with trying to help my mom raise my brothers and sisters, trying to get through school, trying to figure out how I was going to go to college and sorting out who my identity was because you know, I'm a gay, uh, multicultural man. I came from a mixed marriage. My father was Hispanic and my mother was white, came from two very different worlds. Um, and those are two different kinds of masculinity too, by the way, mm-hmm. you know? And so I had a lot to figure out and blend. And I think, I think what kept me back for probably 20 years from, from age 14 to 34 was... I had relationships with women up until I was 34. I didn't come out till I was 35, but I'll never forget. Like I had girlfriends for a long time, like six, seven years, but each time it would hit a wall because they would tell me you won't open yourself up. You won't be vulnerable. You you don't, you just don't show that part of you. It's like, you just kind of cut yourself off and, was very frustrating for me because I didn't understand myself in that regard. And I, and I also didn't have the tools to be able to say to myself, Hey, it's okay. It's okay to be intimate. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to admit that you don't know everything. It's okay to admit that you're not the strongest person in the world. You know, um, it's just getting over all of those lies you tell yourself Uh, to project that masculine image. And I think that on top of that, being gay, you know, in in high school, you know, I was an athlete. And so that's kind of how I got through high school in terms of of being gay. But um, I used to hear the worst, like slurs, like homophobic slurs. And they weren't directed to me, but they were directed to guys in the school that people just didn't see as they either had feminine traits or they didn't play sports or whatever. And it was a horrible thing. And so it was growing up as a teenager, not being masculine was kind of like a fate worse than death. You know, mm-hmm. What's that like? you know if I don't project this image and I don't be this way, um, I'm going to get beat up. You know, I'm going to be called these words, you know? And so you build this wall around you that allows you to get through life but the 
the mental cost of it is really bad, um, really bad. And I think that what, what made me pivot on my masculinity was when I decided to come out and had to tell my family because I thought they would reject me if I yeah. came out. Um, it's quite a rite of passage, isn't it? So it sounds well, like you've it, had, is, you know? <laughs> it sounds like you've had multiple uh, rites of passages in your life, sort of the death of your father yeah. being one of them and what that created. It, it sounds like there was a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. It sounds like yeah. you were learning to integrate pretty adult concepts about responsibility and about who's in charge and what what being a man is but from an adolescent's brain where the prefrontal cortex and the abstract thought parts of our brain are not even fully formed yet and so we're making Mm -hmm. uh decisions especially during that time frame where you're in puberty and so hormones are going through your body like crazy it's like And so, so much of your, I I appreciate how you described as like your childhood was interrupted or your innocence was interrupted at some point by that experience, because it did put a whole lot on your shoulders, whether or not people intended that to be there, it's still, that's how you took it on. And that's a huge rites of passage. And I think what you're describing, regardless of what takes us there so many of us as men do learn how to put that wall up between us and the world Mm -hmm. so that we can survive the challenging experiences we've been through so that we don't get ridiculed as some of those homophobic or feminizing slurs that we use against men because you're right it is the worst thing we can do to that we do to each other as boys is to to feminize each other or to use homophobic slurs to keep each other in check and to keep each other following the masculine norms. Yeah, that's right. And and so I appreciate you sharing your versions of what creates that, because I think regardless of the details, we all have those different moments in our lives that teach us to put a wall between us and the world as a protective strategy. But as you said, like even in your early relationships with women, like there was only a certain closeness they could get to you and there right. was a, then they ran into that wall that you put up and so while it is a protective force it's also a limiting force in some ways yes that's right it really is and i in in my first um true relationship gay relationship i still had a lot of work to do there you know i you learn a lot in your first relationship and yeah, i, I was still having <laughs> <laughs> i was still having problems just kind of letting myself go and being vulnerable so it took a little more work for me, um, other than just coming out to really get in tune with myself and to value my authenticity and living in my truth more than society's expectation of who I was. And I mm. think that when that happened for me, that really changed my life. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm not here to please anybody through being in a role. Um, I'm just myself. Yeah. Warts and all. Yeah. Yeah. So you shared with me in a previous conversation, I'm hoping you're willing to share it here. Um, there were some other elements that led to you that, that created that gap between 14 and 35 when you finally came out. Like, what was it that made you stay in the closet for longer than maybe you, uh, like you would ideally want somebody else to be able to um, do in their lives? Well, I, I, I think... You know, one of the worst things that can happen to a teenage boy is to lose their father. Um, the second thing that happened was um, I was sexually abused when I was 14, 15 years old. 
my mother was worried about how stoic I was after my father's death because I just wouldn't show any emotion and I wouldn't talk about his death or anything. I didn't want to do that because I was just trying to keep myself together to be strong, to kind of keep going. But and being the man of the family, like you were right? sort of being told to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, so she sought out a child psychologist, a child psychologist in town. Um, was certainly known, you know, for work, working with kids and respected at that time. Uh, but what he would do is I would go and sit down and meet with him and he would give me a cup of tea. And I didn't, I, I, I remember like getting sleepy and falling asleep um, and then waking up. And I just thought that was part of the counseling session. I mean, I'd never had counseling sessions before, so I had no idea. But I woke up one time and he was sexually assaulting me and it was very painful. Um, and I was shocked and I got up and I ran out of that office and just couldn't believe it. And I'll tell you how predatory this guy was, was I went home. I didn't say anything to my mom. I was just shocked. The next day I went to school. I came home the next afternoon and he's sitting there at the dining room table with my mom, just kind of visiting over coffee, like oh nothing ever gosh. happened, you know, <laughs> um, and then had the gall to tell me that if I told anybody that he was going to do the same to my brothers and sisters, um, and, and that he really had a good in with my mom and she trusted him. It was a, it was a horrible place to be. Um, he ultimately was, was arrested and is in prison for what he did. Um, but there were some friends of ours in that town, one in particular who committed suicide because of what he did. And, mm. You know, when you're when you're a young boy, sex is kind of taboo to talk about anyway. You know, you can talk about you can talk about it with your buddies, but um, talking about being sexually molested by a man is not something that you could talk to your teenage buddies about. It was horrible. Right. Um, so I had to keep that inside me for a long, long time. Um, and I, I told him that he better not come around me again and he better not do that. Um, and I finally brought a baseball bat with me to the meeting to kind of make it clear to him that um, I wasn't putting up with his stuff. And so he ultimately left me alone. The sad thing is he went on to molest other boys. Um, and then he called me when I was in college and I told him, don't ever call me again. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're not a friend. Um, leave me alone. Weirdly, about eight years ago, I was the um, president and CEO of a company, and he found my uh, corporate bio. I, I have no idea how he found me. Maybe he Googled my name or something. And he wrote me this long email about he was so proud of my success, and he always knew I was going to be successful in everything and wanted to reconnect. And I took that email to my therapist because I was shocked. I'm like, I don't know what to say here. I uh, talked it through, sent him back an email and said, do not ever contact me again. And if you do, I'm going to contact the local local police uh, and I'm going to get a restraining order against you. Um, and so he stopped. But then he got arrested again and I got called by the DA in that state, county, to give testimony, which... I wasn't forced to do it, but I was told that if I did it, it would help him not do that to others. I did do that. 
I found out one of the most painful things when I did that was that he also molested my brother. Mm. And that devastated me. Um, and my brother, who's straight, actually helped me a lot to get through that horrible realization. But, but my point is that um, it, the worst thing in the world you hear is when people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or people on the conservative right call LGBTQ organizations or, or activist groomers. Because it's like, uh, no, I think I know what a groomer is. <laughs> if anyone knows what a groomer <laughs> is, you that, do. <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and, and tragically for me, you know, I wanted to go to school to be an architect. And I'll never forget, while he was trying to groom me, he bought me like this big drafting set and drafting table and everything. And I just thought it was so amazing that someone would take that much interest in me. I, I didn't know then why. Um, but after that all happened to me, I did get into school. I did get into the architecture school, but I, it didn't work out. A year into it, I told the dean, I said, I'm just not really into this. And I transferred to the business school. I realized now it's because he put a mental block up with me yeah. by being so deceitful, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, 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 and tuning into somebody who was very, very, very vulnerable. Mm. and trying to exploit that, you know, for his purpose. But, you know, thank God there are good people in this world and there are good therapists in this world, and, and you learn how to work your way through that mm -hmm. and out of that. Um, but, yeah, that that one really held me back, you know, much more than the being a man one did because I just didn't know who I was or what, what was going on. You know, it's like, you know, you, you – I remember, you know, all the other guys in my school loving their cheerleaders. I love the football coach, you know, it just mm -hmm. like, and then you're just like, you shouldn't be doing that, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, just a lot of, just a lot of conflicting feelings in those 20 years that I was trying to figure out who I was. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Those are two pretty traumatic experiences that you went through the loss of your father and then sort of the sexual molestation um, that both impacted you at some a, a bit of the core of who you are it's like one moment you're yeah. learning you're like having to reconcile what it is to be a man and then another trauma comes into your life where it sort of interrupts your development as a gay man in this world where you're right. starting to see the harmful effects of another person who is d like completely screwed up and has yeah. tons of issues that have nothing to do with being a gay person in this world but yeah I would imagine as a young, as a teenager, you might make an association between, okay, I guess that's what gay people are, that, that actual grooming that happened and that actual sexual perversion that happened that you might, it might cause you to start to divorce yourself from your own identity, your own exploration of who you are, because you just witnessed somebody handle themselves in such a poor way. Well, yeah, I think to compound that, you know, in, in my little town, there were no gay people that I was aware of. Mm. And, and I ne I'll never forget going to the library and looking up the word homosexuality because I'm like, that must be what I am. You know, I like other guys. And I'll never forget reading the book. And it was more of a medical textbook than anything. But it classified uh, homosexuality as a mental illness. I mean, it was it had been published in. 1968 or 69 when i looked it up that was like 1972 um 
homosexuality was considered a, mil- a mental illness and it was sec- considered a security threat. And so to have that mantle on you as well, oh my God, I, I must be a pervert. You know, if this is what I read in this book, this must be who I am. And this man molesting me is what I'm going to become. You know, that that's the, that's the trope and trollop that conservatives use is that, um, gay the gay agenda is somehow a pedophile's agenda and nothing could be further from the truth those are two completely different things um but that but the but that word pervert just really freaked me out and i and that really is what drives my work with the historical society and the museum now is that if i would have only had role models positive role models that were lgbtq folk I could latch on to somebody that I, you know, in a positive way and go, this is someone who makes a difference. You know, a Harvey Milk, for example, is a good example mm. of that. An activist who loved his community um, made a big difference. And, and the reason I fight for the museum and what we do now is I think about a young kid like me now that might be growing up in a little town in Texas or Alabama um, where LGBTQ people are just, kind of on a fighting a hate campaign and thinking they're some kind of a freak. But if they have a website like ours to go to where they can see thousands of, of LGBT role models that turned out really well and made a really big difference, that would make a difference for them. Um, and that's what I wished I had that I don't have that I fight for today very strongly. You know, it's funny. We, um, the museum got attacked by Marjorie Taylor Greene a couple of months ago because she was furious. The city of San Francisco was giving money to the museum to help keep it going. Um, amazing, amazing to me how someone in Georgia could give a shit about what goes on in San Francisco. <laughs> in San Francisco, but, you know, <laughs> how she is, but but you know, um, the old me would want to would want to have fought that with force. Um, the new me who I am now was like, how can we turn this into a positive thing and respond with love instead of from a position of fate of hate. So we just took her tweets and turned them into a fundraiser and fundraised for the museum and made even more money for what our mission <laughs> was. <you know>? Work. <laughs> so it's like, keep, keep those barbs coming. We'll just do another campaign. Uh-huh. You know? So, you know, my, my, my point of, you know, being toxic masculine and just, fighting and being cruel, um, there are many other ways that you can resolve an issue that can actually benefit you and the organization where you're with a lot mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot more effective way. Yeah, it's interesting how a, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene represents how toxic masculinity isn't just a men's th- a man's thing. <laughs> <laughs> that, that she's she's demonstrating some pretty toxic masculine stuff where it's about overpowering, yeah. dominating, uh, using others as a way to get yourself to some uh, some other place. And so yeah. it's it's this is a cultural systemic issue that we're all navigating, yeah. and yeah. all of us are impacted by it, not regardless of our gender identity and gender expression. Yeah. Um, yeah, this whole piece around role models is so important. I was just talking with a, a recent guest um, who had done some chaplaincy work um, in a prison, and he was talking to a, a guy that was trying. Uh, he was working towards being released, and he was talking to him about like who is your, who are your role models? 
out there in yeah. the world. And he had some like of his like mom and his sister, but he was like, well, who are the men you want that represent the kind of man you want to be in the world? And he couldn't come up with them. And I find that wow. so many of us as men don't have role models. And I think especially as queer people, many of us are lacking role models and we might, we were starting to see them out there in the world, but many of us grew up right. not seeing them. And I don't exactly know how old you are, but I would imagine that sort of being of age in the in the 80s during the AIDS crisis also shifts a huge amount of like the role models that are out there for you because a whole generation was lost during that time time frame of gay men. And those that survived are so traumatized by being villainized and called perverts and being left to die, basically. And so it's like our community has huge wounding in especially in terms of a whole generation that lost so many of their friends and community that were villainized by the culture at large and were not given the support that's needed and so like i love this piece around role models and healthy role models that we can look look up to is so important for all of us as men regardless of the nuances of our identities it really is. But I think, you know, in the context of the 80s, and I'm glad that you brought that up, the first the first role model that came out for me was a guy named David Copay. He was an NFL football player, and he came out at a very controversial time. He didn't play again in the NFL. Mm. Um, and another role model for me was a guy named Bob Paris, who was a top bodybuilder. I was a bodybuilder as well. And we worked out in the same gym in Gold's Gym in Venice, and Bob was a great guy, but he came out as gay and they both paid a terrible price because basically um, that iced them out from competing or, or doing anything else they wanted to get in their sport um, because it was horrible that they did that. And yet their courage to do it opened the door for others to come out. And I think about somebody like rock Hudson who, you know, movie wise was like the most macho guy, right? Um, got AIDS, HIV, um, was friends with the Reagans who couldn't find it in themselves to do anything to help that man or to help the the disease that he had um, get cured. They, they just turned their back on it. And so many times in the 80s, that would be what would happen when you came mm-hmm. out as gay. Society would turn their back on you. And I remember when AIDS, HIV was called the gay cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember hearing comments like, great, let that cancer take them over and then we'll be rid of the gays, you know? So um, there, there was a price in the eighties to coming out like that. I, but I, but I, I honor and love people like that so much because their courage and the pain they went through paved the way for kids today to come out and question their gender and look at their gender and say, who am I really as a person? And it's okay if I've got, some feminine traits and some masculine traits. I'm just defining who I am as a person um, mm-hmm. rather than trying to fulfill a role. Yeah. And I, I if there's in, in spite of all the negative things that are happening in terms of states passing anti LGBTQ rules, what, what I love seeing in the youth that I work with and that I talk to is that they have a resolve and a courage that is amazing. Um, because there was a safe space created for them to question that that didn't exist 30 years ago. And, and I feel so happy and grateful for that. 
Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because it is it is hard to watch the news and to see how much is going on right now within our community and what's happening to the trans community. And it's really disheartening and it can feel hopeless at times. But I think that's important to also notice that there are there is a whole generation that's being raised with a different perspective, with a different availability of freedom to express themselves and find themselves as they truly are. And so it's yeah. not all doom and gloom. It's but we are. It's sort of in our faces a lot of the doom and gloom here uh, yeah. in in our country, at least in the U.S. Yeah. And so um, I appreciate you bringing the sort of sunshine into the room as a, as a guy in, who lives in Seattle who rarely sees the sun. <laughs> I appreciate some sunshine here here and there every once in a while. Uh, you mentioned that you were a um, a bodybuilder and you're a, a world class powerlifter, like. Mm-hmm. What was that like being a gay man in a powerlifting in such a like pretty hyper masculine kind of space? Well, I, I think what kind of helped me, you know, I started lifting in my 20s and um, my my best friend who was still one of my very closest friends was like top bodybuilder in our community. And we just got along great. He became my buddy and we started training together and did shows. He and I ultimately started a company that became Max Muscles, a sports nutrition store. But <laughs> the way I was outed was um, I, I had a housekeeper who was cleaning my house one day and found a gay porno in the study because she used to turn on TV to do that. And that's how I would deal with my gayness then was with porn because I couldn't tell my girlfriend. Well, she found it. And she confronted me and told me that her first husband was gay. And she said, you know, you really need to tell your girlfriend. And I, and I, I had a, like a real freak out moment, but I called my friend, Bob, the straight guy. And I told him like, dude, I, I got to talk to you about this. Cause, cause her best friend was his girlfriend. Mm. So I, I, I never forget. We got a six pack, drove out, you know, drove out on some country road. And I told him. And he just grabbed me and hugged me. And he's like, man, I love you no matter what. Mm. And he's like, um, I'm totally behind you. And so when I started coming out in the in the gym, because I had straight allies, because he wasn't the only one, I had a lot that stood up for me. That's what made it possible for me to, you know, kind, kind of be the different one, but the one that was accepted. The other thing that I found in getting really strong is that, if there's a homophobic bully in your gym and he can only squat 315 pounds and I can squat 550, he's going to skulk out the door, you know, like he's not <laughs> going to give me shit. It's like, just get the hell out of here. you know. <laughs> and I think in the powerlifting world, I mean, the, 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 the reason that I got the respect I did was because of my reputation in the bodybuilding world. And, and, and also when I, when I powerlifted, I mean, I, 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 I always won my shows and, you know, never screwed up and just gained a lot of respect in that world as well. And so when I made the decision to get involved with a couple of individuals in London to create the first LGBT powerlifting union, um, we gathered a couple of straight allies in Great Britain that helped us as well. The the GPC, the, the Great Britain Powerlifting Federation helped us. Those were all straight allies that agreed with us that there was a space for trans lifters, there was a space for LGBTQ lifters, and getting their support is what helped us to change minds. And so 
in my activist work, I always remind people of the value of straight allies because mm-hmm. they really do help to build bridges and make make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, we we can't do it alone just as queer people. No. Um we need our straight allies in the world to be our yeah. community, to be our our place of acceptance, to be the part that bridges the gap between us and others. We definitely yeah. need those. You mentioned sort of the awareness that like or the belief that trans athletes deserve a space in that and that's a huge cultural conversation right now and many of the conversations i guess where i stand with it is like many of the conversation it's it's an important conversation to have but so many of them are done and maybe not purposefully but they're done in pretty dehumanizing ways for the trans people that are involved that are just about creating fear about the impact it will have on other people without yeah. recognizing the impact that's having on the trans individuals that are trying to find their space. Yeah. What's your perspective and or and sort of the organizations you've worked with? What are the perspectives around trans athletes in powerlifting? Well, the, the battle in powerlifting as a sport um, is that it's not fair for someone who was born as a male and had the benefit of testosterone to get on stage and present themselves as a female competing against other naturally born female lifters. Um, and I understand that. And I, and I understand why that would be alarming to someone who is a natural female uh, power lifter who has worked very hard to get where they're at. Um, and then has a trans lifter who's twice as strong because you know, originally they had the benefit of testosterone. So what we did was we consulted with the um, IOC and created what we call the MX class. And so when you register for a powerlifting event, you can register as a male, a female, or the MX class, which is a transgender class, so that in that class, you're competing against other trans lifters, but but being as valued as you would if you were a male or female lifter. Um and that the response we got to that was very, very positive and seemed to work well. Ironically, the courts in the U.S. threw out that concept about three months ago with the USAPL, which is the largest powerlifting union in the United States. And you know, I had a couple of friends that were translifters that were really hurt by that and impacted by that. And I told them, I said, you know, I understand you're hurt. I understand the disillusionment. But understand that this is also a process and that there's no perfect competition mechanism yet. We're still, we're still learning a lot about how this all works and everything. And every sport is different. You know, lifting mm-hmm. sports are different from tennis or from rowing, you know, and they all require strength, but um, at different levels. So uh, let's have faith that even if the first model doesn't work, there are plenty of people out there that are dedicated and committed to having a safe space for you to compete. Mm. And, and, and there are, I mean, that that's why as a powerlifting union, we still will have our competitions with the MX class because it gives them a place to come and compete on stage just like anybody else would and gives them an opportunity to be honored and supported in that, in that same way. I mean, you know, a, after all, um, you know, none of us is ever going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's like, come on, you know, I mean, we're here, we're, we're, we're here to go lift and have a good time, you know, in the process and, and maybe win a medal, but the camaraderie around power lifters is phenomenal. It, it mm. always has been, you know, it's like, 
like a little fraternity. And I think what's been wonderful for me in the last seven years that we built this LGBT powerlifting union is that we truly have created a fraternity of trans lifters that are really tight with the straight allies and with the male and female lifters because they're all in it together. They're all in it together to make it fun and to be supportive. And to me, frankly, that's what any sport should be. Mm. You know, I love to hear that because sort of I do some weightlifting and I often find gyms to be pretty hyper masculine spaces. Oh, and, yeah. and I can even notice like that the the scared little boy in me still gets a little uncomfortable in a gym because of uh, just because of what I was patterned to believe as a kid. <laughs> um, and to believe that I was less than as a as a man growing up. And so I I just appreciate hearing that an organization or a sport like that tends to have that that t- that tends to be more in the hyper masculine space has a sense of community and belonging and valuing diversity and valuing individuals and creating spaces where all can thrive rather than this sort of like zero sum game conversation where it's like yeah. well if you get this then I won't be able to get this like why are we folks so focused on making sure that some people have equal rights to joy and and to being honored while we could be creating spaces where everyone can have that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I do have to make a side comment really mm. quick about, you know, you're walking to the gym and feeling intimidated that way. Having now been in that business, I mean, I, you know, I owned my first gym when I was in my early thirties. So, you know, this has been like 35, 40 years. I've had the benefit of seeing lifters who walked in the gym the first time to bench press and see what they became 10 years later, mm-hmm. you know, became big muscle heads and stuff like that. And, and what I came to realize is the ones that are the most obnoxious are the ones that were the skinniest, skinniest little twigs who had so many insecurities and Finally, they built this body that's like a costume, mm. but that scared little person is still, it's in still there. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still and, got and I, something to prove. <laughs> right. And, and I chuckle when I see that. And they know me, you know, so they don't pull that stuff with me. But mm-hmm. but I always get a chuckle out of folks like that, you know. And, and the ones that I appreciate in the gym are individuals who are supportive and helpful of others, you know, when someone's in the gym the first week, I mean, they'll come over and help give them a spot or whatever, because Mm -hmm. they're supporting them. And I, and I think that what we've tried to create in the LGBT powerlifting union is a supportive, safe place where someone can come and the message sent to them is you are valued and we want you here. And you have just as much validity as anybody else get up on that stage and show us what you can do weight wise, Mm. you know, and, and the wonderful thing is to see the audience come together with that and to see um, the other competitors come together and support trans lifters that way. I mean, after all, at the end of the day, we're all just human spirits. That's all Mm. we are. You know, our, our body is our physical representation of who we are, but, our body does not go with us the next place that we go, you know? And so I think that you've got to keep that all in perspective. You know? I, I so love that. And I so want to live in a world where m- the majority of us see things that way. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I I love that invitation to see it in that way, because I think that that does create space for everyone to thrive rather yeah. than sort of the way that we're holding it now, which is only some people can thrive. 
and others can't. And so that, that it's just a little too yeah. harsh for me when we recognize our systems are set up for some people to fail and some people are set up to succeed. And I love this concept that we can just be beings, uh, energetic, spiritual beings that have a body that represents part of us, but it's not the whole thing. It's yeah. not, it's just a piece of it. And so thank you yeah. for that invitation. Another system that you're involved in that is fairly traditionally masculine is sort of the mm -hmm. commercial real estate world that you're in. Yeah, I know recently you received some award um, in that field, and I'd love to hear what that that award was about. And then also like the difference between what it was when you started in this field and then now where you're at with it. Would you share yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the, the award was the inaugural um, Excellence in the Practice of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Award. Um, it's a Fortune 500 company, and, you know, DEIA work is the popular thing these days. So that's why they gave out this award. They'd never given it out before. Um, and I, I was honored and kind of shocked to get it um, and, you know, went that day and went up on stage and got it. But I, but I told my longtime business partner that I work with, I said, you know, it's funny, 22 years ago, they would have fired me for being gay, you know, and I think that there, there's a movie that came out years ago that Tom Hanks was in called Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, and that movie, I would describe as a story of my life when I first got into commercial real estate, because, you know, it was a very old real estate, old commercial real estate firms are like old law firms, or old investment banking firms. Most everybody that works there is white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and most of them get there because their families have, have been wealthy families in real yeah. estate. I was a misnomer. I got I got thrown into that for different reason. Um, but, you know, back in those days, um, I couldn't take my partner to Christmas parties. That would have been unthinkable, you know. So I take a girl who was a friend, even though they knew I was gay, but the fear of getting Kaparsi sarcoma and having those, you know, dark red dots on your face or your skin were, were very real fears. I mean, they really were. And in that movie, uh, one of the law partners notices that on Tom Hanks, and then they try to ostracize him, blackmail him and fire him. And that's exactly what would happen mm. and did happen. Mm. Um, and so oddly for, for, probably the first 25 years of my career, I never met a gay man in my business, in the commercial real estate business. But again, I had a coworker, a, a, a business partner who's still my business partner who was straight, who I told that I was gay and asked him if he had a problem with it when we first started working together, which he didn't. And he really became my ally, you mm. know? And so that really helped me to realized that I could influence in my own organization, accepting people other than people that were wasps. Okay, like, mm. let's diversify this organization. I mean, even to think about women being in commercial real estate was unthinkable back then. Um, so I, I, I really kind of looked at my work, not just on behalf of the, of the LGBT community, on behalf of women, on behalf of people of color, on behalf of anybody who was not white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, because mm. they deserve those opportunities and having them as part of the organization would make the organization stronger too. So my work over those years, and I think why it was recognized was that I was just advocating for 
people that were not like people that were working in the firm. You know, it's funny because when I look at our firm today versus 25 years ago, it is very, very different. You know, back then that was like a white boys fraternity. Now Mm -hmm. um, it is more and more like what a tech company would be or what, um, you know, what, what a more progressive company would be. And that makes me feel really good. It really does because Commercial real estate is a wonderful career to have, and and you can make plenty of money in it. The problem was in the past, those walls were up for people that were other than a wasp. And so I'm really proud of my work in that regard and glad that I'm respected amongst um, my peers. Um, When 20 years ago, I couldn't even bring my partner to the convention. You know, when I, when I was there, Last year in Austin, Texas, accepting the award, he was right there by my side. Mm. Such, a, such a turnaround in the well. world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you should feel proud of your efforts to 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 make this space more representative of what the actual world looks like. That to break down some of those walls that kept some people out and some people in, to break those yeah. down and to be a part of it. And one of the themes I also hearing you hear keep hearing you say is, is that your impact as a person is only heightened and expanded because of the allies you've found in your life. Those straight identified allies that can show up and help amplify or create space for you to, to do the work that you do so well. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I, I think for any of us, you know, any of us that are out there and wanting to make a difference in the world, you wish you could wave a magic wand and solve all the problems. And then finally you get to a point where you realize that, maybe what you're doing is very, very little in the mm. scheme of things, because mm-hmm. there are so many problems in the world. And, and so you kind of have to step back. And that's really what I did and go, you know, I don't have 50 quadrillion dollars that I could give to solve the homeless problem and everything else. But what I do have is I have my own privilege in terms of being somebody who um, is a man um, you know, came from a family, you know, on, on the white side of my family, that was a good prominent family. And I was like, how could I use that privilege to help others? And so that really has kind of become my mission. And that really is what framed my powerlifting work is, you know, I can use my reputation in the straight powerlifting world to help affect making this happen. Um, and that's exactly what I and a couple of other founders did. We used our privilege that way um, as a way to build pathways for people that otherwise would have been locked out at the door, you know? Mm. And so I, I think for any of us, you know, and, and, and I call it privilege because um, we all have different levels of privilege if we think about it. Um, but if we can, if we can take what we have and stand up for others and then standing up for others, also listening to them, so, you know, we got two ears, one mouth, right? Just listen, listen, listen. Um, through that kind of humility, I think we can make significant changes. I really do. And I look back on LGBT powerlifting now, and I'm like, all right, we've been at this now for eight years. We're getting ready for an international competition in Guadalajara in five months. There going to be people coming around the world for this. You know, that didn't exist 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, we did impact and make a change. And even though it might be for only 200 people 
at least I did it for 200 people. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wish I could do it for the 3 billion, but I can't, but I, but I can do something to impact at my level. Um, that would make a difference. And that really is kind of the way that I look at it. I can't solve all the world's problems, but I can take what I have to help solve a few. I love that. And I love that invitation for others to use their privilege in whatever way they have it. And I think privilege is one of those things that can be really complex because some of us, like you and I, we might present looking, uh, I mean, you look pretty white to me, although you have yeah. a Hispanic background for part of your background. I'm very yeah. white. So we can look like white male with privilege, and we do have privilege right. in that. And yet we're both, we're also part of marginalized communities. And so we also have yeah. parts of us that are disenfranchised. And so I think it's really important to claim where you do have privilege and not to just take the hardships of your life or the things where you have felt left out and excuse you let that be an excuse for not stepping forward and acknowledging where your privilege is. Yeah. And so I love that invitation for all of those men that are out there that are listening that find communities or people that you connect with that don't represent the same as you and find yeah. where you can be an ally, find where you can use your privilege to create space for someone else. That And I think the, the common fear is, is that if we create space for someone else, we might lose our space or we might lose our privilege. And so it feels like it's, it's a, there's only a scarce amount that's available. It's just not true. As you're noticing, yeah. like the allies that have helped you in your life have never, you've never taken their space away from them by being, never. by them being allies to you. Yeah. And this element that you're talking about of like, I may have only impacted 200 people, but when you create spaces where 200 people can feel safe being themselves whose nervous systems can regulate in that space and then they go out into the world that ripple exactly. effect is so big and so i it love is. that you're not saying everybody needs to go be an activist that's going to uh, uh, create huge systemic change that impacts millions of people millions or billions of people yeah. but to start where you are or start close to you and make the yeah. impact that's available to you and then that ripples out. Know that that has an impact as it moves out into the world. That's right. I, 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 you hit it right on the head because the reality is that um, none of us are guaranteed anything other than the day that we're living in right now. I mean, that, you know, everyday people leave this earth. I have no idea when that's going to happen with me. But what I do know is that for the day that I'm here, I'm going to do everything I can within my power to use my humanity to help benefit others. Um, mm -hmm. And that just, you can do that in big and small ways. You know, it mm -hmm. doesn't have to be this grand thing. And I'm also very mindful because one of my role models has always been, and still is Martin Luther King, because mm. Dr. King demonstrated that you could affect social change through peaceful demonstration. He came at the world from a position of love, which is something that I totally agree. In. And that, that is one of the most non-masculine things, if you think about it. You know, I mean, that's the opposite of people who just want to grab their guns and go out and just tear up the world, right? He, his view uh, was a different one, and it, it impacts people to this day. And yet, he died through an act of violence, you know, mm -hmm. which, which was really terrible. Um, but that doesn't take away, doesn't take away at all from all the work that he did to pave the way and to show others. And there are so many young black activists that use him as a role model. And I understand why, 
It's like he made so much of a difference that he's still impacting people today. Mm-hmm. I think if, if, if he was around today, he would be astounded and amazed what he started, you yeah. know? Um, but he did that in the context of his time. And then when he left, he'd inspired enough others to continue to do that work. And mm-hmm. I think that that's what we've all got to do within our sphere of influence. Yeah, it's so true. Like we're getting to see those two uh, Tennessee lawmakers that are that sort of were yeah. kicked out with it, were kicked out of the legislature and are back in. Yeah. If you listen to them talk, they're using very inspired Martin Luther King yeah. uh, speech and they're sounding yeah. very, they're hearkening back to something that actually is super yeah. powerful. And you get to see that have a reemergence come through. And so it, do, it does yeah. continue to ripple out. It's not just yeah. the 200 people that you impact. It's then yeah. what, where does that, where does that go from there? Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the things that you've done already and the things that you've been there. And you've also shared with me that you have a project that you're working on for the future um, to help continue to expand your impact on others. Would you be willing to share uh, what's, what's to come from you and your work? Oh, thank you. I'm happy to do that. I, you know, last year I got involved with an organization in Denver um, called Envision You, and that organization brings mental health services to LGBTQ youth. Um, they're busy right now because you're having youth come from homophobic places like Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas to, to move to Colorado. Um, but being able to provide those mental health services to LGBTQ youth at a level where the youth would respond was really meaningful to me. And so I invested in another public benefit corporation that is called You Flourish. And that organization is building a social app for LGBTQ youth. But what I'm working on in this project that I call Transforming Up, which is linked to those two, um, is that Transforming Up will, it will be designed to bring life coaching services to LGBTQ youth. Because what happens is, you know, when you come out and you do the hard work on the mental health side, okay, like, like once you've come out of the closet, you're like, now what? And life doesn't teach you life's coaching skills that you can then use to take all the good mental health, health stuff and use it to build a life that mm-hmm. is meaningful to you and that impacts others in another way. So that's why I see this, the space for life coaching mm-hmm. um, in the LGBT youth community. Cause it's nice that there's mental health, but I see life coaching as a way to complement that and kind of take an individual to the next level. Like, like how can I be an, an LGBTQ entrepreneur and really affect change in my community? You know, yeah. um, and that's the second part of it. So um, that's really been a labor of love. We're, we're um, beta testing the social media app right now, and hopefully we'll have it launched by the end of the year. And again, you know, the way I look at all that is I, I wish we could help every LGBTQ youth in the world. We can't. Um, I think that organization right now has about eight or 900 um, users of those services. But what we can do is create a model and an example so mm-hmm. that people in other parts of the country and the world can kind of do the same thing, you know. Um, and, you know, if one of those turns into 100 of those, think about how many LGBTQ youth you can reach across the world. Mm-hmm. So, it's again, it, it's not so much about quantity, like how many you can reach. It's really about quality, about what is it that 
you're bringing in the table that is adding value to somebody's life. And having gone through both of Martha Beck's um, life coach trainings, I've become a real believer in life coaching because I think it really can make a tremendous difference in how you improve the quality of your life, but also how you can improve the quality of life of others through your actions. So true. Obviously, I'm I'm deeply invested in this field as well. <laughs> Starting yeah. as a social worker and then becoming a coach um, to working with people, it does because I think sometimes therapy and those me- traditional mental health services are often focused on the past. That what, what are the experiences Correct. that created you? What did you? What do you need That's to right. heal from? What do you need to transform from? And then the coaching can come in as a way of helping us with who we are right now and where we're going. It can really yeah. help us design. I love that phrase you said, like design a life that's worth living. And and oh, I think yeah. it is true. It's like we come out, we step through that rites of passage as queer people and we come out and then it's like, now what? Like, yeah. I don't have, I don't have the tools <laughs> to know what to do with all of this or how to create the life I really want. And so I'm so grateful that you're creating an, uh, this labor of love, which is about giving access to people who need it. And I, I love the like imagery that comes to mind of like somebody in a remote town where they don't have any other queer people around them. They don't have anybody to look up to and they can get on something like this and receive some support, find role models, find people they look up to that can support them and help them even without needing to move to a, a liberal progressive city where they can be themselves. That's true. But, you know, the other thing I want to add is that you truly can create the life that you want to create mm. for yourself. That That is available to you. And, you know, I joke with my longtime mental health therapist because I still have, I still, you know, have meet with my therapist every week. And mm. and I tell him, I'm like, he's like, how are you doing? Then I'm like, I'm living my get, big gay life in San Francisco. And I am, <laughs> you know, because, you know, my partner owns one of the biggest, most historic gay bars in San Francisco. You know, I'm involved with the museum and the archives and now with the saving of the Castro Theater. He's involved with his projects um, in his social community. And so we're a couple who are activists in San Francisco and really are living our big gay lives to the <laughs> fullest. You know, we, we, we love each other. We've got a great partnership. We both have great careers and, and, and we both love our community and work in it. And I think about the distance I came from that lonely little boy who was 14 years old, Hmm. who didn't know where he was going to go to that. And I tell my therapist, it's like, this didn't happen by accident. You know, I, 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 I had to have the courage to come out. I had to have the courage to think about what I wanted. I had to have the courage to get through some bad relationships to finally to get one that really worked for me. Um, you know, I, I had to do all of those things. <laughs> but the truth is that with some life coaching and some planning and with people helping you by opening doors, you can create an amazing life for yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, one, one of the things I, I didn't get the chance to tell you, but I will very quickly, is how I got into commercial real estate was when I was in college, I was a student body president at the university I was at. And I had to report to the regents every month about the students. Well, one of the regents was a commercial real estate developer and took a liking to me and um, said, you should go into real estate. I'll never forget telling him. I, I looked at him. I was like, 
I didn't get a degree in business administration to go wear a yellow jacket and sell real estate. <laughs> and so, um, you know, my first little venture was I owned a high-end men's clothing store with a partner of mine. And this developer's office was down the block in, in this downtown. He'd come by and tease me for like two years. He'd step by every closing time and be like, we need to get a real fucking job. You know, it's like a tough <laughs> Jewish New Yorker guy. So that's how he talked. So finally, one day I told him, I'm like, all right, let's have lunch. So let me see what you really do. Well, it turned out he was the biggest commercial developer there. Like he had all these models of high rises and industrial parks and everything. And he was the one that got me into commercial real estate. He hired me and that's how I started my career. But he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And I'm forever grateful to him for that. And that's really what I try to continue on in my own work with with LGBTQ youth is to help them see something in themselves that they don't perceive as a strength, but that really is a strength. Mm -hmm. And that does come through, you know, life coaching dialogue, as you well know, is to kind of figure out, you know, what are my strengths and what is it that I can do to make a difference? So I can tell you that if I'd never met that real estate developer, I don't know where my life would have gone. I really don't. Um, He made a meaningful, a hugely meaningful impact on me by believing in me and giving me the chance to do that. So beautiful story. And I appreciate you bringing us sort of full circle as you were talking about your current relationship, as you were talking about like living your big gay life in San Francisco. (laughs) I was in my mind imagining the 14 year old boy who was probably kind of lost after his dad died or after some of the other traumas of your life. And so I appreciate you bringing it full circle. And I got full body chills as you were talking about the distance that that boy has come and how, how he was able to create a life that's really meaningful and powerful for him, even with his hardships, even with the stuff that got in the way or took him on a detour in life. Um, And so I appreciate you saying that. And I, I, I love that there's sort of, you represent a model for, boys who've had hard things happen to them yeah, still can live a thriving, powerful, important life where you're yeah. not only being of service to yourself and your relationship, but you're also being of service to your community, to those around you, to the, the field that you work in. There's so much power in your presence as a man in this world. And I so appreciate the journey you've been on, even through the hard stuff to get here, because I know there's probably moments where <laughs> it didn't feel like you were going to get here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. Sure as anybody, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate it, because you sh- you serve as a model. You serve as one of those role models that other LGBT youth need to know, that it doesn't matter when you come out in your life, doesn't matter what happened to you, you can still thrive in this world. And yeah. you can still thrive even when parts of our culture are trying to tell you you're not worthy of that. And so I so appreciate your story. I so appreciate you sharing of yourself. If people wanted to find out more about the work you're doing in the world, how do they get in contact with you out there in the internet? Um, My, my website is www.bcgstrategies.com. My email address is ben.gilliam at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach me. Okay, great. I'll make sure those are in the show notes so people can easily access you. you. They want to support what you're doing out there in the world. If they want to, if they are an LGBT youth and wanting to find out more about what's going on, um, 
I, I'm going to encourage people to connect with you because you're just a solid dude. And I'm so glad that we were, we were connected. Um, I just really appreciate you saying yes to coming on this and for being a part of the new masculine with me. So one of the things I, I want to give you full credit for, because you deserve it, is creating a space where people can tell their stories because those mm -hmm. stories are impactful and make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, in several years, I worked on a project where Holocaust victims were giving oral histories. And that's so important because as they passed away, they couldn't tell those stories anymore. And yet they're recorded and people can listen to them now. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for creating that space. Um, where men and men can come and talk about their stories and talk about their masculinity and the challenges of shedding what I would call toxic masculinity and becoming a full whole person that has, it has nothing to do with gender definitions mm -hmm. it has everything to do with being a positive human spirit. So thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. And it's definitely a soul project of mine. And I just, um, it's, it's important to me to hear other men's stories. We don't hear these kinds of stories often enough, and we don't see men participating in conversations that involve vulnerability and intimacy. And yeah. I love being able to bring that out into the world and allowing people to access it. Um, just in my little, my little world of creating impact yeah. in this way. <laughs> so thank you for joining me, Ben. And I just really appreciate you being such a powerful voice in our community, but just as a, as a man and an, as an LGBT man, um, that's in, that's here to be a role model for others. Thank you. If you want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Travers03. That's where some of the ongoing conversations on this podcast are going on. So if you like something you heard here on this episode, come follow me on the Instagram and we'll continue the conversation there. If you're enjoying the mission of this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash the new masculine to be a contributor. It just helps me continue the mission as we go on. So that's patreon.com slash the new masculine. Thanks again, Ben, for joining me. And until next time. <laughs>